Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time to turn off the lights, grab some popcorn, and watch some horrible horror movies. This is the Terrible Terror Podcast. Each episode I delve into the world of terrible horror movies. Why do I do it? Well, I can't really explain it, but I love these horrible movies. If you've made a horror movie on your phone, or made your own special effects MacGyver style, please send it my way. Now, what do you get when you mix a creature, a black lagoon, and a beautiful lady who's there on an expedition? Why, you get the creature from the Black Lagoon. Welcome to a bonus episode of the Terrible Terror Podcast. In fact, for this episode, I should be calling it the Terrific Horror Podcast because we're looking at one of the all-time universal classic monster films in The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Now, first off, I want to thank Phantom Dark Dave uh, from Black Cat Shadow and Dave's Pop Culture Podcast for putting this all together. I mean... It was his idea to have a bunch of podcasts come in. Before this one, if you haven't started listening to it, you'd want to listen to Creature Features Pod for The Invisible Man, and then Back in Time Pod uh, for Dracula. And now I'm doing The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes, a little out of order, I understand, but it's still fun nonetheless. It's a good way for all these pods to kind of connect with each other, and it's also a good little retrospective, hopefully for the listener, for all of these universal horror movies so he asked me to join and so he said right away hey you're gonna do from the creature from the black lagoon and i was like okay you know that's fair because he knows what it means to me uh and i originally thought about doing both the creature and revenge of the creature kind of like what i did before for halloween one and two but after some thinking i was like you know what no i want to stay with just the classic and Revenge is a very good movie, too. It's actually one of the few sequels that works really well, especially with an older-style movie. This was originally made in 1954. And you can definitely tell in terms of some of the dialogue and the way they treat the female character of the movie. Uh, but in general, the cinematography for this film is quite fantastic. I mean, there's a lot of really cool underwater shots. And... It's, well, there are quite a few underwater shots in this movie because it takes place in a black lagoon. Hey, who knew from the title that's exactly where it would take place from? 
it's one of those films where, you know, for at least from my earliest memory, that I really have the greatest fondness with, with all of the Universal films. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you know what I'm talking about. And I don't really want to go through that all over again, but it does hold a special place in my heart. But when I look at all the Universal Monster films as a whole, I feel like I have the biggest connection to this one. See, like with Dracula, there is a big connection with my grandmother uh, because of her fear of Bela Lugosi, and that guy can fucking scare anybody with his eyes. Boris Karloff was one of my grandfather's favorite Frankenstein's monsters. And, you know, it kind of was that genre that kind of, you know, kind of molded me as I was a young kid. The universal horror monster genre. With my dad, it's always funny because I really did get exposed to, like, the main, like, well, yes, the main, I guess you could say. But not really, like, full-fledged. Like, we wouldn't watch Dracula there. What we would watch instead was, like, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein or meet Dracula. And it's funny enough, to promote this film, there was a short that was Abbott and Costello meet the creature. Or, in some cases, you should know him as Gilman. Because that's what he's referred to in the film. And that is what his official horror monster name is. Though a lot of people call him the creature. Which is perfectly fine. I kind of refer him to that more because that's what you see in the title. It's not Gilman from the Black Lagoon. It's the creature from the Black Lagoon. But he does show up in kind of a TV special that you can find out there. Uh, I think you can find it on Netflix. Not Netflix, I'm sorry. YouTube, if you search good enough. But you can actually purchase the little short directly from Amazon. And you can get the DVD. And it's relatively good. Uh, it's really cheesy, but of course, those Abbott and Costello movies weren't like <laughs> grand cinema. They were always just kind of silly and fun, and they met Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman at one point during all of their movies. So, with my dad, that's where I totally remember a lot of these creature features, except for the Gillman, right? He's the only one that wasn't a theatrical release that I saw from, you know, my kid, when I was a kid. But with my grandfather and my grandmother, to some extent, we watched all of these classic horror movies. Uh, and, and this one was always one that really stuck out with me. Uh, and it totally is my favorite. Now, for those that are listening to this as part of this Universal Horror, you know, monster-a-thon, I'm going to quickly go through what exactly I do with these reviews. I know this may be redundant for those that have listened to me before, and for those that haven't, I'm really happy that you're listening to this episode, and I really wish you would check out the back catalog. And for those that have been supporting me, I really and truly appreciate it. And you don't know what it means that you download these podcasts every week. But basically, I'm going to go through the film from start to finish. So we're going to look at specific pieces. We're going to talk about it. We're going to do all of the plot, including the end of the movie. And then I'm going to give a rating for the film. So you get a big synopsis of the film. And this is going to come with clips. So... The clips in this one, there are not as many in a standard uh, episode because there's a lot of scenes where they're swimming underwater. And so some of it's going to seem like it moves a little faster than it does because the film itself has about mm, about a 70, I don't know, maybe about an 80 minute runtime, maybe a little longer than that. I think it came out to like one hour and like 15 minutes or 18 minutes or somewhere around there. So 
that would be about 78 minutes uh, in total. There's, you know, that, that's just film film. That's not the little intro and then the, the end credits. And when you look at old 50s end credits, they're relatively short, which is always great. You don't have to list all the people doing all the special effects. Though, it would be kind of cool, as they learn later on, that those people get some recognition for working on the film. So... We're going to go through the whole thing. There will be clips and audio. Now, the audio in this, because of the file that I have, it's a little staticky. Uh, and I do apologize. I clean it up the best that I can. But it may get a little weird. And they're not very long clips, so hopefully everything will work out okay. But we'll go through. We'll talk about everything that's going on. And then, you know, I'll introduce you to the next podcast that's going to be doing the next movie. Uh, and then, you know, all that other fun stuff that comes at the end of every fucking podcast that you ever listen to in your life. It's kind of like watching those YouTube videos where they're like, like and subscribe and hit that red button. But, you know, instead this is for podcasts and you know, but enough of that bullshit. I don't want to get too much into that. Let's just quickly talk about the film. Now, this came out in 1954 and stars uh, Richard Carlson, Julie Adams, Richard Denning, Antonio Moreno, and Whit Bissell. Produced by William Allen and directed by Jack Arnold. And this is actually a 3D horror film from back in Universal International. Now, I did didn't get to see this in 3D, and I've never seen it in 3D. This would be one of those films I think would be really cool to actually see in the old-style 3D film. And this is a, you know, 3D black-and-white horror film. And it really is one of those good films, like, when you look at 3D movies in general, you get two types. I consider it to be the immersive and the Captain EO. Now, the Captain EO is where you have the lady with the fingers, woo, you know, right in your face, and this is 3D. You know, that type of 3D, or Friday the 13th, you know, 3D, where everything's just kind of coming at you. And then you got immersive 3D, and that's films, if I'm going to say something that's more well, not so modern anymore, but kind of revitalize it for the modern age, I would say that would be Avatar, right? Say what you will about the film in general, the 3D and use of 3D in that film is very immersive. I would imagine that this film would be one of those, because even if you're watching it now, and it's rare if you can find a copy or a 3D print of this film anywhere, it is almost impossible to watch this film in the original 3D. Uh, so what you get is just a good, still, standalone movie. I could just imagine the water scenes, that they're, how they're shot and how they would look in 3D. I think it would be pretty amazing for this to be re-released in that type of format. Not necessarily rebooted, but just like, say somebody in some cinema somewhere goes and finds the 3D print of this and is able to actually put it out or remasters it with the current 3D technology that we have so that way we can watch it. I would love to see these films on the big screen once again in some type of universal monster marathon where we can watch all the classics together at once and then go home and listen to all these podcasts at the same time. Hint, hint, wink, wink, plug, plug. So... Without further ado, why don't we start the film? And what better way to start the film with an in-the-beginning type of narration? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And 
This is the planet Earth, newly born and cooling rapidly from a temperature of 6,000 degrees to a few hundred in less than five billion years. The heat rises, meets the atmosphere, the clouds form, and rain pours down upon the hardening surface for countless centuries. The restless seas rise, find boundaries, are contained. Now, in their warm depths, the miracle of life begins. In infinite variety, living things appear and change and reach the land, leaving a record of their coming, of their struggle to survive, and of their eventual end. The record of life is written on the land, where 15 million years later, in the upper reaches of the Amazon, man is still trying to read it. So the first thing that you're going to notice right away is that the Earth looks just like a giant white orb. I mean, there's no definition to it. It is pretty plain up there on the screen. I would imagine that they would at least be able to show, like, a globe or something. But no, they decide to put, like, an ice ball directly onto the screen. Then we focus on the waves, and we see the waters moving, being very turbulent, until we see the shore. And it kind of looks like the beach there in Planet of the Apes, just in black and white, which is very odd. And I don't know why I thought I was going to look over, and there was going to be the Statue of Liberty and two guys on the ground yelling... You ruined it, you madman! Uh, but instead, no, we see a bunch of, like, footprints on the beach. See, they kind of look odd. Like, they look like they could be human feet, but then when you look kind of closer and they zoom in, it looks more like weird, like, double feet on each one, or possibly they're trying to show you that these are the creatures' webbed toes that have come out of the water. And then we go into the Amazon, and we get some really cool shots of the jungle that's there, and we see that there's an expedition, and they're busy digging into rock, and that's when they find something in the walls. What that is, Dr. Maier? I don't know, Luis. I have never seen anything like this before. Is it important? Yes, I think it is. Very important. We will take one more picture, then we will dig it out. So, first thing that you notice here, besides the giant hand that's sticking out of the wall, is that everybody has fucking bowl cuts. Like, seriously, except for our professor here, all of his help look like they have the exact same bowl cut haircut. Like, somebody just stuck a bowl over their head, made sure that it was down to basically their jawline, and then just cut around and gave everybody bangs. And if you've ever seen a man with bowl cut and bangs, oh my god, it's like the ugliest fucking thing that you've ever seen in the world. And the hand itself, like, this is one of my joys of these old Universal Monster movies, and I've said this multiple times, but it's practical effects. And my god, does the hand for the fossilized creature look fantastic. Like, come on, today I feel like that would be, and this is like the old person of me talking, but that would be some type of like CG monstrosity sticking out of the wall. Though, there are a lot more practical effects and horror coming back. You only really find those in the kind of the big blockbuster style movies, and a lot of really good independent horror still uses practical effects. 
So you have it dug into the wall, and the professor decides that he's going to take that and take it to a local university. We pan over over into the water, and as a fake-out, we think we're going to see the creature for the very first time, but we don't. And this is also one of my favorite things about this film, is that we don't get a whole body shot for the creature for quite some time. It's a lot of fake-out, and then it's kind of a slow reveal until we get to one point in the film. There's not necessarily the slowest of slow reveals. I would have liked to have gone further, but it's really until about, uh, I'd say about 15, maybe 20 minutes of the film that we actually get a, well, a taste of what the creature looks like. Until then, it's really just a quick shot of his hand, and then just like this where we get that shot, and then we go into the water thinking maybe we're going to see more about the creature, we actually just get to meet Dave, who's swimming under the water as part of an expedition. His girlfriend, Kay, she's up on the shore, and that's where she meets the good doctor, who explains why he's there. David, David, I have a surprise for you. Yeah? Carl, my ear. It isn't you. What's left to me, Dr. David Reed? The last I heard of you, you were up the Amazon someplace digging for old skeletons and things. You too were doing research for an aquarium in California. What are you doing in Brazil? Oh, we've been guests at your institute for a month now. We're looking for specimens of lungfish. David, you still don't look like an ichthyologist. (laughs) The geologist's point of view. He expected the lovable old professor with a beard. (laughs) I didn't expect him to look like he did when he was a student of mine. Give me a shoulder. Are you two married yet? No, no, David says we're together all the time anyway. Might as well save expenses. Did you ever hear of two living as cheaply as one? That's what I keep telling him, Carl. Well, I'm waiting for Williams to give her that raise. Then she can afford me. (laughs) Come on, let's go ashore. So that is that type of dialogue that I was talking about earlier in the film. That, like, 50 cents of, oh, you guys are living together, but you're not married? Oh, well, shouldn't you be doing something about that? No, it's okay. We're going to just fucking sin. Everything's all right. We're scientists after all, right? We don't have to be super religious and be married right away. In fact, she can't even afford me just yet. So they're all working basically under Dr. Williams, or as Mark will call him for the rest of the film. And, uh... The good doctor here, Dr. Maia, he is, and believe me, that's not the easiest to remember for me for some fucking reason. (laughs) He's here to show what he's found, the fossil of the hand that he's found to the local uh, researchers and find out maybe if they could actually get some type of expedition out there to further find some more fossils and basically to keep up his work. I was hoping you experts on marine life could make some identification. I've never seen anything like this. Look at the webbing between the fingers, David. Yeah. Maybe we'll know more about it after I find the rest of the skeleton. Boy, I'd sure like to be with you when you do. So would I. What about your boss? You think you would be interested? Williams? <laughs> There's a chance of any publicity. Just try and keep him away. Now be fair, David. Publicity brings endowments. Without money, there isn't any research. That's right. If it weren't for Dr. Williams going on digging up the dough, we wouldn't be down here. Where is this thing? At the Institute. So, surprised enough, he's actually brought it to the Institute that Dr. Maya currently owns. And they're busy, which is weird at the same time if you think about it. Because if it's his Institute, wouldn't he know that David has arrived for whatever reason? Like, hey, you've got people that are doing research there. But then again, he was also out in the jungle. So, uh, I guess I kind of give him a pass. 
back of the institute they're basically showing off the hand that was found right and it looks like the creature's full hand is just completely fossilized and as they're looking at the hand mark he decides that this would be a good way for them to raise some profit possibly belong to a pleistocene man well, the chances are much greater that that hand belonged to an amphibian mark one that spent a great deal of time in the water well then how do you account for the structure of the fingers obviously for land use what do you think, Dr. Matos? We can be sure of one thing. Whatever it was, it was very powerful. You say you have hopes of finding the rest of the fossil? As soon as I get a suitable expedition together. Well, why don't we make up the expedition? <laughs> We're here now, and after all, it does come under the heading of our work, doesn't it, David? Oh, it certainly does. More and more, we're learning the meaning and the value of marine research. Look, look over here. This lungfish... The bridge between fish and the land animal. How many thousands of ways nature tried to get life out of the sea and onto the land. This one failed. He hasn't changed in millions of years. But here, here we have a clue to an answer. Someday spaceships will be traveling from Earth to other planets. How are human beings going to survive on those planets? The atmosphere will be different. The pressures will be different. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. With that knowledge, perhaps we can teach men to adapt themselves to some new world of the future. Nice speech, David, but there's still a practical side to it. If I sound brash and more like a banker than a scientist, try to remember that it takes money to run an institute like ours. A find of any real importance can be of great financial value to us also. Certainly your board couldn't disapprove. It certainly couldn't. Dr. Maya, you've got yourself an expedition. Good. Okay, so first off, it's kind of rude to call that one fish a failure fish, okay? I get it. It was meant to come on land. It doesn't have the lung capacity to. And you can't really start and, well, start talking shit about a fish that you're studying right now. Second, this is also during that age and time where we were very interested in what could possibly be in space. This is where you get all those sci-fi movies where, all you know, we're being invaded by all of these different monsters and aliens and things that we don't understand. And so there's a big correlation, and even nowadays, there's a big correlation between what we know in space and what we actually know under the sea here. And it's really cool to see this movie actually talking about the things under the sea that we don't know about. There's still so much. As you go deeper and deeper into our oceans, there's some fucking scary things down there. And there's some new things that we have never even seen. Like, I think in just like the past couple of months, like there was something new, a new type of species that was found in the ocean. It's nuts, and there's a lot of weird mumbo-jumbo that also comes in these old, like, 50s monster-slash-sci-fi movies that they try to make, and they do a lot of it now, we know a lot of that stupid tech-speak that goes on, but it seems like back in the day, and it's probably honestly because when you or I are listening, well, watching this film, and you are listening to me talk about it, we know a lot more than they did back in the 50s, okay? Everything was still... Uh, a learning process. It's like that joke that Patton Oswalt makes about, you know, having kids and saying that, oh, yeah, when you did this, they found that there's this thing. So what you did wasn't wrong. It just we found something new and now we're doing it this way. It's the same thing when we look at sci fi and tech and stuff. 
What we say in our current sci-fi movies, we're probably really amazed about. And in about 20 years, those sci-fi movies, there's going to be kids watching and be like, that's a bunch of bullshit. We know that interdimensional time jumping is due to the flux capacitor inside of it. And you don't have to go 88 miles per hour. You only have to go about 65 and that thing can kick in really well. And we make flying cars easy. They don't do that type of bullshit. You know, that's the type of crap that we're going to be learning from the youth of our generation versus, you know, what we're looking at currently with the, those that were born in the 50s and that were making these movies. There's no discounting what they have to say. It's just funny to kind of listen to that old mumbo jumbo that they talk about. But when they talk about the sea, it's still true to this day. And that's what was truly amazing me when I was watching this film is that what they what he says there about the ocean is exactly what we say now. We really don't know shit. So they decide to go off in the jungle and further this expedition. Meanwhile, we cut back over to base camp and we see the a reused shot of the claw that comes out of the water in the beginning of the movie. And instead, this time, the creature decides to attack all the poor help that was there at the camp because... I don't know why. This is one of those weird things where I'm not exactly sure why he's attacking everybody. Where I get it towards the later part of the films. Because there's a beautiful scene underwater that we're going to talk about. But here, I just don't know why he decides that he's going to attack them. Now, granted, maybe they're littering. Granted, maybe they're just intruding upon his space and this is territorial. And that's what I kind of have to accept at this scene. But at the same time, it makes sense later why he's doing what he's doing to the rest of the crew. Con- uh, conversely to what he's doing to the help here. We also get a couple of, like leg shots if you will it's again that slow reveal of the creature you just get bits and pieces of it here and there until we finally get the full thing but what we do get to hear in this scene is what the gillman actually sounds like while he's attacking the help Now, honestly, the Gilman sounds like a pig mixed with something else, or death metal vocalist, one of the two. I'm not quite sure. I can't really differentiate the two between them. Maybe he would actually be really cool as a death metal vocalist. Like, you put some fucking rampaging drums against that, and some fucking sweet guitar licks, and then you just... And then, you know, you got, like, the Gilman going, man... You could have, like, you know, Gilman beats death or some shit. I don't know. You could call it what you want. And thinking back on this scene, maybe I do kind of understand it because it does seem like he startles the people that are there. Like, they don't just... They attack first and then he retaliates back. But not everybody attacks him first. Of course, once one person attacks, then it's okay for you to kill everybody else, right? Even the guy that was, like, sleeping or the one guy that was just taking a shit. Man, all he's trying to do is take a crap and go to bed. And he's not trying to attack you. He's not trying to do anything. He doesn't even know that you're out there. But the other people that got startled by you, yeah, it's okay to kill them. But leave the other guy alone, Okay. So we cut back over to morning and we see that the expedition is traveling on a ship uh, captained by Lucas. And they're traveling through the Amazon rivers over to wherever the original site was. We get this really weird scene and 
piece of dialogue that was a little bit startling to me because when we first heard Mark and he heard about the possibilities of what they could actually find, he was totally all in in the situation. Then all of a sudden, after, you know, Dr. Maia, he's built like a lab downstairs for them to test the rocks in. He suddenly has a weird change of heart to where he's like, I'm not sure whether or not I trust that what he found was actually real. Well... Now we have a lab, such as it is. Well, let's hope we have some use for it. I'll be disappointed if we don't. Assuming, of course, that Dr. Maya's facts are well-founded. Dr. Maya's a scientist, not a fortune teller. How can he guarantee anything? Well, it seems to me a scientist has need for both uh, vision and confidence. I didn't mean it as any personal criticism, Doctor. It's just that I always look forward to success. Okay, Mark, you're a fucking dick. Like, honestly, you look forward to success? Like, you're just worried that you're actually getting a return on your investment. I totally understand that. But you don't have to be like, oh, well, his claims... that He hasn't made really any claims. All he did was find this fucking arm and bring it to you and be like, hey, look, there's this fossil out there. Let's see if we can find some more of this stuff. But I don't have the right type of resources to do this. And you're like, shit, cha-ching, money, uh... I will totally go and we'll totally fund this expedition right here. It's just so weird that Mark would turn so quickly. Like, literally within, well, I guess the night. He goes from, oh man, I'm so excited and I so want to be part of this expedition. And hopefully we find something that we can profit from. And then the next day is like, well, fucker, make sure that you have your shit together. And I better find something and your shit better not come unfounded. Like, what the hell? Oh, but no offense. No offense. They continue down the river, and we get some more kind of like uh, scientist bullshit, I would say, where they talk about the Amazon and how it's still like the oldest like spot, basically kind of getting a reason why the creature would actually be found here. And I thought the Mississippi was something. It's a winding brook compared to the Amazon. This is exactly as it was 150 million years ago, the Devonian era. It sounds like the beginning of the world. It is. Even the animals here grow as they did in Devonian forests. The anteater is a giant with the strength of a bear. The centipede grows to be a foot long. The Amazonian rat is as big as a sheep. That's incredible. It's true. And don't forget our catfish. They grow to be nine feet long. And killers. Like everything in this jungle. All killers. Or Dr. Maya says we're going to drop anchor in a couple of hours. Maybe you better get some rest, huh? Okay, who gives a fuck about the size of your catfish, other than it would probably feed you all pretty well. But the fact of the matter that rats are as big as sheep, like, it's really, really overblown. The whole idea here is that the Amazon is a good representation of the beginning times of the world. And that's how, you know, explaining to the audience how the creature is actually able to survive in this type of environment. Because one, it hasn't quite evolved, I guess, is also the other thing that we're looking at. Or if there is an evolution, it's a slow evolution. So, or in different ways. So everything's bigger than what would be centipedes that are huge, rats that are huge, and catfish. Because, well, who gives a shit? Because that, wait. So maybe they evolved first to go and getting people's, like, identities. And then maybe they were the, maybe that comes from the Amazon. Huh. Something to think about. Yeah, something to think about later on. But anyway, so they continue down to the Reach base camp, and that's where they find that the whole camp has been ransacked by something. 
that some type of monster has shown up. Well, they think it to be a relatively large animal has shown up and basically massacred everybody at the camp. And without the help, they decide that this is basically going to be up to them to dig the whole site up and to figure out if there's actually more fossils there. We get another shot of the creature. He's not completely exposed yet, but he is creeping up on Kay, and that's where you know he wants that sweet, sweet, sweet white woman poon that only a creature can be lusting after. We see them dig the site for a couple of hours, or according to them, a whole day, and really come up to nothing, to which leaves Mark very frustrated. A world-shaking find, all that. Eight days. All we dig up are enough stones to pave a road. You had enough, Mark, or do we keep on digging? I'll tell you when I've had enough. We failed. That's all people will understand. So with Mark down in the dumps, Dave actually comes to his senses and believes that possibly at one point... This was actually further up the river and came down the river to this point where it fossilized. Lucas tells of a great lagoon that's up the river that a lot of his people talk about and that maybe there is something there that they can find. So they all decide to get into the boat and go up onto the Black Lagoon. Black Lagoon. Beautiful lagoon. Another world. Take her out a little farther, then we'll get the net over the side. You expect to catch a fish? Well, we might as well find out what species are here. We're not interested in what species of fish are here. We're after the rest of that fossil, remember? I need some rocks from the bottom of the lagoon for a test. But we just got here. Well, why waste time? If any parts of the wall that contained the fossil were ever deposited in here, the rock test should prove it. Yeah. I'll get the aqualungs. You be careful, David. We don't know what's down there. And this starts some of the most beautiful cinematography that you're going to see in an old black and white movie. See, in The Creature from the Black Lagoon, there's actually two actors that play the creature. While the creature is on land, it's played by Ben Chapman. But then while it's underwater and doing all the swimming, and I'm probably going to butcher his first name, but I believe it's Riku Browning. Uh, he plays the creature while it's swimming. And so what we get are these fantastic underwater scenes. And this leads to one of two. The first one is just where Mark and David, they go into the water and they start like looking at all of the rocks and everything down below. Since uh, Dr. Maia, he set up a, a lab on the ship, they're going to take some of the rocks from down below in the water and they're basically going to test everything that's there. What do these rocks tell you anyway? How old they are? It's called the uranium lead test. What do you want to know that for? So we can match them against a sample in which the fossil was found. Yeah, you idiot Lucas, man. Come on. They want to basically prove that the idea that the rocks may have washed from that area downstream, right? And what also leaves me laughing, and I never really thought about this when I was a little kid, is that the creature actually follows them from that spot. He hangs out at the, like, fossil site. That's basically where his home is, if you think about it, for most of the movie, because that's why he went and looked at the stuff that was with the campers, because he was very curious about what was there. And then when you look... He follows them into the Black Lagoon. And it's weird that it's the creature from the Black Lagoon when, from what I understand and what I'm gathering from this film, he's actually not originally from there. Or if he is, he hangs out most of his like days outside of the Black Lagoon. 
So underwater, we see David and Mark, and they just grabbing a bunch of rocks, and he cuts off David, some like seaweed or some shit from under the thing, and when he pops up, he presents that over to Kay, and it's like, this beautiful thing's for you, and I'm like, it's seaweed. You can get that from fucking anywhere, but of course, it's not seaweed. It's just some type of underwater plant, but it looks very generic, and I would be very upset if I was her. Like, my boyfriend, he won't give me a ring, but he'll give me this water plant okay and what if it's filled with some type of disease or parasite like you're basically killing her at this point because in the amazon we especially in 54 we don't know what the fuck is down there i'm surprised there's no piranhas in this fucking lagoon they go down there looking for the damn rocks and all of a sudden they come out without shins you know uh it would just be a big bloody fucking mess but we get kind of traces of the creature while they're down there too because we know that it's stalking them while they're there and we actually get a decent shot of him from down there, but he never approaches him. It's really more of an interested like type of monster. This is our brand new things. I've never seen this before. Hell, I've probably never seen a white man before. One that could swim underwater with those weird aqua lungs staying down there below the water for quite some time. And when they get back out of the ship, they decide to take all, everything that they've found so far and bring it into the doctor's lab. Before going underneath, David tries to have some type of interaction with Kay, but of course, Mark, he still maintains being the dick that he is. Come on, David. You can play house later. David, about Mark. Well, what about him? Try to understand. I've been trying. Somebody ought to tell him his ambition is showing. It won't do any good, I know. Long before you came to work with us, I tried. But, David. There's this to say for him. He's produced some important findings. He's also taken credit for some important findings. Well, coming below? No, no, I'll wait up here. Hey, hey, what was it like down there? Like another world. I'd like to see it. So what he's kind of referring to is something they refer to much later in the film. Because Kay works for Mark as well. And he's kind of saying, like, Mark is stealing her work and making it his own. And you don't really get that in the scene right here. You kind of get it that it might be that, hey, you know, he's stealing other people's work. But the facial expressions from David kind of look like, hey, it might actually be related to Kay. But you're not really confirmed at that moment. So the rest of the crew go downstairs. Meanwhile, Kay, she stays out on top and she dreams that, oh, I wonder what it's like seeing under the water. And she decides really quickly to turn into, like, change into a bathing suit. And honestly, you're on an expedition and you manage to bring a one-piece swimsuit with you? Like, and you're that's what you're wearing? Like, you're not wearing any other clothes but that? Oh, I'm sorry, you're wearing, like, a see-through shirt. And again, we're here with a weird pointy boob thing. I don't get this about, like... 50s and 60s fashion here when it comes to swimsuits and bikinis and shit like that it always has this really pointy tip where the nipples are it's like the nipples are constantly at attention but it's just the make of the swimsuit it's odd i don't know why that fashion existed and it definitely doesn't exist today and i don't know if it needs to make a comeback or not but julie andrews looks fucking hot okay in these scenes when she's there um there's no mistaking that if i was the creature too i'd have a creature boner a mile long uh just like he does and this is probably the most beautiful point in the film 
And I would gander to say, if you haven't seen The Shape of Water, please go and see it. But this is an inspiration for a lot of those scenes. Because she jumps into the water and she swims, and we see the creatures swimming alongside of her. Like, there's a really cool scene where he's, like, timid. He wants to touch her. He wants to feel her. And he, like, kind of reaches out his hand, but pulls it away and gets it and pulls it back. And it's just, the, the whole scene is so beautifully shot. Uh, I am amazed that this is from 1954. Like, the time and love and energy that went into these underwater scenes are just absolutely amazing. Even from where some of the other things they do, where they're more like attacking the creature, the way that they're shot and the way that they use certain practical effects are really well done. But this scene in general is just like art moving because you're watching her above uh, on towards the surface of the water just swimming and here he is below her and he's just swimming because he's so amazed at the figure of this woman that it's something that it's obviously showing through some type of emotion as he's swimming around and this is truly some of the first shots that we get of the creature like full long shots after he's been shown to us And without having the emotive images of somebody like a Doug Jones being able to show what he wants to convey to the audience, we have this Gilman suit, which honestly, by today's factors, it's pretty silly in general, okay? The eyes are a little bit buggish, the way that he moves the mouse, but it's still really beautiful. Like, the suit looks beautiful, Uh, And I can't believe that it held up so well in the water in the way that it was designed. And when you watch him and you watch him swim below her in the the loops he makes, and it's obvious that he has some sort of attraction to her. And if you see nothing, see this part of the movie. Like, this is really your Beauty and the Beast moment right here. This is, if you've seen The Shape of Water, this scene in particular reminds me of the dancing scene in that movie that you watch. Except for that's her, like imaging herself onto him and the love that she has for him where in this scene he's dancing with her unbeknownst to her because he's able to control himself so well in the water eventually the people on the boat realize that Kay's no longer there and they call out to her if she's gone way way far from the boat and they try to bring her back by bringing the boat closer and having her swim closer up to the boat Once they do manage to pull her up on top of the boat, all of a sudden somebody gets stuck in the nets below the water that they dropped for the fish, and everything kind of gets crazy. Hey, that wasn't a very smart thing to do. But what? What was that? I don't know. Something's in the net. Pull up your net. Come on, hurry up. Get away.
fish to this. Who says it was a fish? And that could have hooked onto some underwater rock. Wait. There's no rock that left this in the net. It's amazing. I just finished a rock analysis. And you were right, David. Some of the limestone deposit where I found the fossil is on the bottom of this lagoon. So the creature, even though it manages to escape, it leaves one of its little claws behind. And this gets Mark super fucking rock hard. Because he's like, no longer are there just fucking fossils here. But we have a real life fucking thing below. And it looks exactly the same as one of the claws from the hand that they saw earlier. Now, does that mean it's from the same creature? Maybe he's missing an arm? Or is it from somebody else? You know, kind of what we're led to believe, at least here, is that he is the only creature that's here. So, that still raises that question for me. Like, does he have regeneration powers? Like, if his arm gets cut off, can he get a whole new one? Like, shedding like skin like a snake, right? Or like Piccolo from Dragon Ball Z. Somebody removes his arm, Piccolo just... And then there's the fucking arm right back and ready to go. So... Mark, he decides that the best way to deal with it is just to capture it and kill it and take it in for the money. Put that over the side for me, will you? Whatever the species might be, if you let it alone, it won't bother you. Yeah, maybe. But if you're wrong, this harpoon will correct any mistakes. Mark, we're out for photographs for study, not trophies. This, this thing alive and in its natural habitat is valuable to us. Well, why settle for a photo when we can get the real thing? You don't sound like a scientist. You sound like some big game hunter out for the kill. You may not be back home, David, but you're still working for me. Yep, Mark, still a dick. If you haven't had your, like, dick check in a while, that's number three where he's being a fucking prick. And he mostly is because I kind of get it from his perspective, right? He really is here. He's probably putting a bunch of money into this. This could bring a ton of money for the Institute. And it's a find that nobody else has seen before. So they're going to grab this gill man and they're just going to go straight up and like parade around. They get a ton of research money. They can do all these other things that they've wanted to do just for having this crazy creature captured. But they don't want to just capture it, they want to kill it. And David himself, he's more of a humanitarian in this regard, because he just really wants to take pictures of it for the time being, right? Go down there, he's going to go with this big, giant, huge fucking underwater camera. And I mean huge. It is massive. It is basically half the side of, of David himself, and he needs it to have Lucas help him lower it into the water. So Mark's going to go with him just in case, because in case this thing actually turns violent, he wants to make sure that he can kill the fucker dead and then take it with him. So what's the point if it's going to get, you know, angry, but it seems like it only gets angry when it's provoked. So they go go into the water searching for the gill man. And unbeknownst to them, they actually managed to find it. And David, he thinks that he gets a picture of it, but as it starts to swim away, or kind of swim more towards them, actually. First in curiosity, Mark shoots the harpoon at the poor thing. And it's actually a really good effect as well, because they do this, like, bubbling effect. So when he goes to fire it, it bubbles right in front of the camera, and it's always a straight-on shot. You're looking directly at the person that's going to be shooting the harpoon. So it's at the end of it, here comes the bubble, then the sound, and then the creature gets stuck with a harpoon. Uh, for this time, it is a great effect. I really enjoyed this as an underwater scene as well. 
because the bubbles do a good job of hiding it. You don't have to see it travel through the water and stick into the monster. It just kind of does. And you know the monster feels the pain from it. Because, well, one, he grabs himself where it hurts and he makes those sounds. They do manage to get away from the Gilman after they've shot it. And when they get back on board, Dave asks Mark, why the hell did you shoot that thing? You didn't wait long enough before coming up. Why'd you shoot? You weren't attacked. You sound as though I'd put the harpoon through you. And what makes you think we're supposed to play tag with the thing, whatever it is? I tell you, we can learn more from it if it's alive. Please, what is it you found? I don't know what you'd call it. It sounds incredible, but it appeared to be human. I tell you, if it's what I think I saw, it's the greatest find yet. Nothing compares to it. Well, I've got the proof here in my lens. Many years ago, I heard this legend on the river. A very old native tell me of a man who lived underwater. But she was crazy. Crazy ghoulie, everybody called her. <laughs> the unknown always seems unbelievable, Lucas. One accepts these things as legend and lets it go at that. But to actually believe that there exists something like a human being that can live underwater. Now, this is no legend, as you'll soon see for yourself. Well, what about the Komongo? Science hadn't heard about it until a few years ago. And the Komongo lived way back in the Devonian age. Interesting that the fossil I found was out of the same period. The Komongo was a fish that breathed air. What does that prove? Well, nothing, except that the Komongo fish, which has lungs, exists today, right here in the Amazon. It hasn't changed in all these millions of years. It still doesn't prove the possibility of a gill man. If the evolution of that species could reach a dead end way back then and still survive, why couldn't another? Where is he? I was sure I had him in my finder. For a merman, he takes a fine picture. This wasn't imagination, Doctor. I'm sorry, David. What proof do we have if we never find it again? If you hadn't stopped me, we could have taken it. Dead or alive, what's the difference? Okay, you know the proof that you have is the goddamn claw. Like, did you just throw that away? You decided that that wasn't proof enough? Like, you basically go back, you say, hey, we found this thing out there, and they're like, no, you didn't find it. They're like, yeah, look at this. And this is fresh compared to that fucking hand that we found back there. Like, what the hell, man? Why do you have to obsess so much about this this live creature and the fact that you just want to kill it. Like, I'm totally with Dave on this one. He's like, he can't hide very well, okay? When you're under the water, the gill man is very easy to spot. He tried to hide a couple of times, and he kind of got away, and then all of a sudden he was spotted. But when it comes to pictures, he's the goddamn Loch Ness Monster. Like, he took a straight shot out of him, and the only thing that you get is some coral. That's it. He's just invisible when it comes to pictures, but you got the fucking finger or the claw or where the fuck that thing is. So everybody's going to at least believe something from you, right? It's not going to be 100% proof, but it's like, look, here, this thing fucking exists. So why don't you all come and help me capture it? And then with, with a good team, you don't need to just do it with the old doctor, the crazy Brazilian boat captain, his two helpers, and the other people that are fucking useless on that ship. Like, come back with real people and real supplies to capture this. I'm pretty sure that somebody will say, yeah, okay, I'll do that for you. Meanwhile, while they're still arguing underneath the deck, the Gilman has actually gotten onto the ship and starts attacking the crew of Lucas. They run outside, they manage to chase it off, but they can't quite capture it at that point. 
Dave, he decides that, yeah, the best route is to actually capture it so we can learn more about it. Mark, he still wants to kill it, but Lucas offers a solution that kind of works for both of them that will allow them to capture it. See, he uses this type of route that other fishermen in the areas use that, well, why don't we let Lucas explain it? All right, Lucas, start your pump. Now all we have to do is catch it. It's a waste of time. You'll never take it alive. I want to try, Mark. We can always do it my way. We could just be sure of its reaction. Do you suppose it remembers Mark's attack and, and seeks revenge? I welcome it. You'll get your wish, all right? I've got a hunch this, this creature remembers the past and more. I don't want him creeping up on us while we're sleeping. I know a way to bring him up now. Huh? Rotono. He's a drug which the natives make from roots for catching fish in still waters. Sometimes I catch fish that way. I show you. Look. Excuse. One taste of the poison water, and whew, the paralyzed fish floats up to the top with a big hangover. Well, come on, let's try it. So your solution is to get the gill man high. Basically stoned off of his ass so that he floats up to the surface like a lot of fish when it paralyzes him with whatever root thing that you're using. Okay, I guess it works. It's a little more humane. Not as humane as it should be. But then again, we're in the Amazon where people probably aren't really regulated and then they're just doing whatever the fuck they want anyway. So sure, they go out into the water, Dave and Mark that is, and they start throwing the root all over the lagoon. And at first it doesn't quite work. Nothing really happens because, hey, they're using an amount for fish. They're not necessarily using an amount for a gill man. So they decide to turn the stuff that they're using into more heavier, like, Alka-Seltzer style pellets. And so that way they drop down further into water and hopefully the gill man pops back up. Back out on the water, they start dropping these larger pellets all over the place. And Mark himself starts to get a little impatient that the gill man hasn't popped up yet. Come on. You talking to me, Mark, or something out there? Both, David. Oh, they won't believe it back home, none of them. I wouldn't have believed it myself. Sitting out here waiting for some monster to appear. That's why we've got to take him. Why won't they believe, Mark? Because we deal with known quantities, with knowledge we've accumulated up to now. We've just begun to learn about the water and its secrets. Just as we've only touched on outer space. We don't entirely rule out the possibility that there might be some form of life on another planet. Then why not some entirely different form of life in a world we already know is inhabited by millions of living creatures? We must have the proof. So again, it's really interesting that he's talking about this thing that would even nowadays we still don't truly know. The other thing that's funny is that he tells Kay to stay where she's at, and of course she doesn't. Uh, the monster, the Gill Man, he attacks the boat by first destroying one of the lanterns on the outside because fuck your lantern, that's why. And they manage to get the Gill Man. He tries to capture Kay, and in the scuffle, eventually, they do capture him and lock him in a really, really shitty cage on the boat. Will he live? I don't know. Depends on whether he can survive both the Rotenone and being out of the water so long. You sound as though you feel sorry for him. Why? He could have killed you just as easily. But he didn't. 
doesn't make any difference now. The point is, he won't do any more killing. Well, anytime you're ready, Lucas, we can start back. Mark, we're not finished here yet. We've got to make a study of that grotto. We've got to collect photographs. I've data. got all the proof I need. Get going, Lucas. Mark, we're not going anywhere until we've finished our work. All right, David. If it'll make you feel any better. Oh, uh, Doctor, would you mind staying behind and keep an eye on our prize? Don't be long, David. You better get some rest. First, the one thing I found really funny when they were going to go capture the Gill Man, because he gets on top of the boat, he tries to get Kay, and then he jumps back in the water. And then, all of a sudden, you see him out in the water. The light is fucking shining on him, and Kay goes, There he is! Look! After they've already put the spotlight, like... David is moving the spotlight around and trying to find him, and then he moves and he puts it on him. He's obviously found him, and she just has to go, hey, look, there he is. Then they follow him into the water. They go into the underwater caverns, where I guess is one of the places where he makes his home, and that's where they actually capture him and bring him back to the boat. And so they put him in this really shitty cage. I mean, it's like ropes and bamboo put on top of an area where there's water so that way the gill man can breathe. Now, I might have put some more of those drugs in there or kept him drugged up at least. So that way, you know, he's docile for the entire trip that you got to do. I totally agree with Mark. You just should have gotten the fuck out of there with him, right? You've got him at this point, he's captured, he's not going to do anything, and then you leave the weakest of all of the scientists there to fucking watch over him. Like, there's only two people that are left there, this weak-ass scientist and Kay. And I'm not saying that Kay couldn't hold her own, because she looked like she could kick somebody's ass, but this is also the 50s, where she's a useless fucking female lead character. And so you have a useless female character, a useless scientist watching over the Gill Man while everybody is out exploring the caves and everything like that and getting more fucking rocks. Where even you yourself later on say, well, we could come back. But no, instead, you got to go out there and risk everybody's lives, especially your girlfriend. And don't leave somebody that could be better at watching the goddamn Gill Man. Because even though we get a fake out at first where we get a girlfriend scare... Guess who fucking escapes? Yeah, I'll let you guess. Hi. Thought I'd come up and get some air. What do you suppose is taking them so long? David's very thorough. But shouldn't you be resting, Kay? I couldn't sleep. Listen to the sounds. Hunting calls, mostly. Animals out for the kill. Some of them are cries of fear, like people who whistle in the dark. I'm not exactly blind. You're worried about what's happened between Mark and David. But once you admit the simple fact that you're in love, which you have, then it becomes a good idea to be the scientist about it. It's not as easy as that. Why not? If it weren't for Mark Williams, I wouldn't have my work or, or even a job. That's true. He helped you through your training and gave you a job, but he needed you just as much as you needed him. You're oversimplified. You've more than repaid him many times over. Why, a good part of his present position at the Institute is due to your valuable research. And another thing... <laughs> 
Okay, so this is a really weird conversation that they have before the Gilman escapes. A lot of it that he's talking about basically is that this is putting a strain on the relationship between her, David, and Mark. Because Mark is the one that actually got her to where she was, right? And I guess maybe they're kind of hinting at some point that maybe Mark and her used to be together... And then all of a sudden she started seeing David and that was the end of everything. Like, didn't have to worry about it anymore, but that she should stand up to Mark. But he's, she's like, well, that's my boss, so I really shouldn't do this type of thing. And he's like, well, fuck him being your boss. You're in love. And that's the thing that matters the most is that you're in love. What? Like, none of that makes any sense. Like, seriously, okay, there's a strained relationship between them. All you have to do is say, hey, look, you, dickhead, stop being a dickhead to my boyfriend. Hey, boyfriend, stop fucking fighting with my boss. And that'd be the end of it. But instead, the fact that they're having this really odd and really dumb conversation leads to the Gill Man escaping from his cage and trying to grab Kay once again. He beats the shit out of the other scientist that's there, and then... She actually is able to fend him off by smashing a fucking lantern against the Gilman's head and setting him on fire to where he jumps into the water and swims away. Everybody else manages to come back to the boat after the attack has happened and they bandage up the poor doctor and set him up downstairs to make sure that he can heal. In the meantime, Dave, he decides that, it, you know what, it's really time to just get the fuck out of here. How is he? Infection doesn't set any may pull through. The fool. It wouldn't have happened if he hadn't been careless. There's no one to blame. Four men dead so far. If he dies, what a useless waste of experience and ability. Nobody meant it to happen, David. Mark. I'm for getting out of this lagoon just as fast as we can. Without taking what we came for? We didn't come here to fight with monsters. We're not equipped for it. We came here to find fossils. Later, later, we can come back with a properly equipped expedition. Be reasonable. Reasonable? Oh, what else could I expect? But you, Carl, it means as much to you. You're driving yourself too hard, and the rest of us along with you. We are staying until we get him. Or until somebody else gets killed. No, we're not. Lucas? We're getting out of here just as fast as we can. Okay. I'll make the decisions around here. Oh, but you are wrong, Mr. Williams. On the water, the Capitão makes the decisions. We will do as you say. You will listen to me. You wish to say something, mister? Huh? <sighs> Dr. Mayo, will you please to pull up the anchor? I will start the engine. So I guess Mark really did have the good idea at first to kill the thing after they disturbed its habitat, but honestly, they just really need to get out of there. Mark tries, as you heard at the end of that, tries to force what he wants to do, which is stay, uh, and Lucas, he actually pulls a knife on that fucker, and he holds it right up to Mark's throat, and basically says, I am the captain, and you're gonna fucking listen to what I want to do, so they decide that they're gonna leave. Uh, as they travel or try to travel outside of the lagoon, it seems like the Gillman's just a little bit smarter than they thought he was as he sets a trap for them. I tell you, nothing was there when we came in. It was put there to keep us from getting out. By him. I checked below for damage. I go aft and keep watch. You'd better stay with Thompson. 
It's our last chance, David, to get the proof. Look, you can see for yourself, it's still here. We're trapped and fighting for our lives, and you're worried about whether people will believe us. Eh, he's all right down below. Go in the cavern and lock the door. No, no, stay here with us, you're safer. Lucas. Lucas, start your winch. Hmm? Go on, go on, start your winch. So Dave goes to the front of the ship, and he decides to remove now... I know, okay, it's supposed to be logs, but they don't look like logs, they look like twigs. And honestly, they're not blocking a whole lot. Like, I'm pretty sure that that boat could just run right over it. When you go underwater, there's a lot more than there seems to be, so that at least makes sense once you see that. But on the outside, it looks like somebody just threw twigs into a riverbed, and it's like, oh no, it's blocking us, and we can't get through. But honestly, for this, it looks better when you go underwater than what you're looking at right now. So Dave goes to the front of the ship and he tries to remove the logs that are in front so that way they can escape from the lagoon. And in the meantime, after he's slipped everything around them the best that he can, when they're pulling it up, eventually it snaps and it comes back up to the top of the ship. They believe that it just slips off the logs, but we all know because we see the underwater scenes that it's the Gilman that's breaking it and making sure that they cannot leave the lagoon because he wants to get his revenge and he needs to get that sweet, sweet capoon. Dave comes up with the idea that he's going to take the rope from the winch and he's going to go under the water and he's going to fasten it that way. And then Mark, he decides that he's going to go with him, but Dave, he has other ideas and wants to go alone. I'm going in with you. Mark, all we're interested in right now is getting the entrance to this lagoon cleared. I'll be the bait for him. Oh, Mark, get out of my way. Let it come from me, David. It'll give you a chance to get at him. You're crazy. Crazy to want to bring back the biggest find anyone's ever made? Oh, you don't know what this can mean, David, to all of us. Mark, you're not going with me. I am. And so Mark punches Dave out, and they get into a little bit of a fight. Dave comes out on top, and Dave tells Mark that you need to stay the fuck there while he goes into the water. So he takes the stuff, goes into the water, but Mark follows him anyway. As Dave is trying to attach the stuff to the logs, the Gilman attacks, but luckily Mark is there just in the nick of time. He shoots the harpoon, almost shooting Dave, but manages to get the Gilman instead. So while Mark is busy fighting off the Gilman, we have Dave attaching everything to the set of logs. Uh, in the distance, there's a it's a really cool action sequence as you see Mark and the Gilman struggle, and eventually he pulls him down pretty low, and he actually slashes at the aqualung that you know one of the tubes, so that water begins filling his lungs. He can't escape it after being mauled to death by the Gilman. Mark does die, and Dave is actually able to get the body back and get back onto the ship. Uh, now mourning the loss of Mark, they decide that they need to get out of here, and they still can't quite get the stuff around the logs below. And that's where, based upon what Lucas has to say, just a fleeting comment, Dave comes up with a brand new idea to use the drugs they used before to stop the Gilman from basically unhatching the hooks. It's the only way. We've got to clear this inlet. Hey, the fellow down there. You think maybe he's a mosquito you can shoo away? We've got to take that chance. Oh, sure. What's an expedition without two martyrs at least? Kay, Kay, I'm doing the only thing we can do. If we all just sit here, we'll... 
We'll all end up as Mark did. Wait a minute, something you just said about his not being a mosquito. Maybe we won't have to fight him on his own terms after all. How much rotenone have we got left? Oh, not enough. Enough to use in a spray gun? What? Oh, you mean to kill like a mosquito, eh? It worked for us before. And it took plenty of time. All we want is to make him groggy. Just keep him away long enough so I can get a cable around that tree. Well, what do we use for the spray gun? One of the air bottles. A solution of rotenone released under pressure. That ought to do the trick. Some trick. Come on. So he basically prepares what they need to prepare, and he puts it in one of the air canisters so that he can spray it like it would be a bug spray on the outside world. Now, I just imagine what would happen if you accidentally switched up the air canister for the one with the fentanyl or whatever it's called, and you basically killed yourself because you're going to be breathing in the... Well, or you'd get really fucking high. I'm surprised that some stoner hasn't decided to make, like, a fucking bong out of a like air canister or something like that. Though, I bet you it's probably happened already, Wayne, and I'm just such of a square that I didn't think of it first. So anyway, so he takes that bottle of bug spray, which when he sprays it under the water, honestly, it looks like fish jizz. Uh, There's no other way to to talk about it because he sprays it out, and just like those nature videos you see when the fish, they spray their seed over the eggs in the bottom of the ocean, that's exactly what it looks like. He's just pumping that thing hard, and when the creature comes by him, he sprays it, he's spraying white jizz all over the creature which of course i would back off if i saw that coming at me too because i don't know what the fuck you're spraying at me and i don't want to get a fucking pregnant or anything like that so even though there's no way that i can but still you so they have this underwater battle why they get everything basically set up and then he ends up getting up on board the gilman and he captures Kay and takes her back into the cave Dave gets back on board, finds out that she's been captured, and then she, he chases after the gill man. He gets into the cave. He sees that Kay is lying there by himself, not thinking that this is a trap, but it's a fucking trap, you idiot. And he gets attacked by the gill man. Luckily, Dr. Maya and Captain Lucas are there to stop the gill man and basically shoot and kill him, allowing them to escape. He runs out, the, the gill man himself tries to escape, he takes a lot of fucking shots. Like, he has to take at least seven or eight shots, he manages to get outside, they chase him to the lagoon, he dives into the lagoon, where it is assumed that he dies after he gets into the water. Uh, again, the there is a really great shot of him when he captures Kay and he's swimming away, and it's funny at the same time, because you can kind of see that she's helping him swim. Like, he can't quite swim with her, because she's a little awkward to do while he's trying to, like, I'm captured you, and she's actually using either her left or her right arm, I think it's her left arm, to actually, like, swim a little bit while they're underwater. It's beautiful still. Like, again, all the shots underneath are wonderful. So, when the gill man goes into the water, uh, they're all looking out into the lagoon, and then we look underneath there, we see the gill man's body, it slowly stops swimming, and then it slowly starts to sink to the bottom, and the end theme plays.
that's the creature from the Black Lagoon. This is absolutely one of my favorite and probably the favorite Universal monster movie. And thank you, Dave, for giving me the opportunity to talk about this film because it really doesn't fit into the format of my show. Like, it's just that good. There's a lot of really bad old school 50s horror movies that we could talk about. There's a lot that I could go through. But here, this is just such a classic film that, yeah, is it cheesy at times? Yes. But at the same time, it's truly like, it is a Beauty and the Beast story. It's truly man invading nature and disturbing nature. Uh, He is so in love with this woman. He's so in love with Kay when he finds her that you can just see in the way he moves in the water and it's absolutely beautiful. The landscapes are really well done. The sets are well done for this film. The underwater cinematography is top fucking notch. The costume looks great, even though the gill man in the face doesn't look the best in the world. And he always seems to have his mouth open the entire time like he's ready to suck a dick. But, hey, we don't want to talk about that. Uh, We just want to talk about how wonderful, and for the time, for the 1950s, this film just is. I mean, the acting is well done. Everybody seems to be taking the role pretty well. Um, and even the female lead isn't as useless as a lot of females that there were used in these types of movies. A lot of times it was a Dan of Soul in Distress, which unfortunately Kay became towards the end of the movie, but she was able to get out of her, like, one of these situations. And truly, it was that water scene between him and her that is the pinnacle of the film and can make me understand why Guillermo del Toro made the film he did in The Shape of Water. This is absolutely a spiritual successor to this franchise. It is so fantastic, and if you've never seen this film before, you need to see this film. Now, is everything great? No, there are still things that aren't quite perfect. I don't like the way that K is used. I don't like how throwaway a lot of the side characters are. The only people to die really are the Brazilians, except for Mark, who deserves to die, and he ends up getting, you know, that kind of Captain Ahab mentality that he gets when he wants to just take this creature for money. There's a lot of other things, and it ends very abruptly. I wish there was a little more of an epilogue here. Maybe some type of line that you have there, you know, to... It's kind of like when, at the end of King Kong, where it's beauty that truly killed the beast, right? I want something like that so bad in this. But instead, what we get is we see the Gilman supposedly dying and just sinking to the bottom. It's very sad. Like, I... I feel for this creature because it's not his fault that he turned like this. He's not an inherently evil creature. Later on, he kind of becomes that. But in this film, it's it's a tragedy. It's not necessarily just a monster movie. But this is a full-out tragedy because he really did nothing wrong. His space was invaded. They tried to capture him. They basically shot at him first and attacked him first in most of these cases. And he just retaliated because he's a creature in the wild, right? It's like if you provoke a dog long enough, you poke him in the eye constantly, eventually he's going to snap at you unless he's the two lazy fucks that live in my house who don't seem to do anything but sleep on their backs all day. But nonetheless, it is truly a beautifully tragic film and it's a film that I think everybody needs to see. If you've never seen this film before, Do yourself a favor and go out there. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it on Amazon Prime. You can find it on YouTube. Please 
do yourself a favor and watch this film. So what do I rate this film? I know that I have a I'm a big like I have a big giant boner for this movie, but looking at it objectively, it's a zero out of five in the gore because there really is no gore in this film. Uh, at this point, it really didn't kind of get into those in these films. Every once in a while, you'd see something shocking. But really, in the Universal Monster movies, it was about the tension in the scenes, and maybe that's something that this film was lacking. That's why I kind of give the crap factor a 1 out of 5. I would have given it a 0 out of 5, but I really feel that there needed to be more intense uh, scenes in this film. Like, you get them from Frankenstein and from Dracula and the Mummy, and to some extent, The Invisible Man, uh, as well as films like Phantom of the Opera. There's always some sort of dread. Where here, you're just kind of looking at this creature, and yeah, there's the hand, but that kind of gets re, you know, replayed a couple times and redone. It's just like, oh, it's in the portcullis of the damn ship. Ooh! It's not really terrifying. Like, I could, could see it be terrifying, but. If I look at Bela Lugosi's eyes now, even when I looked at him when I was a kid, I'm still fucking scared shitless. Where this, it's fantastic. I wish I could have seen it in 3D. Now, the fun factor, it's a full, it's a four out of five. Um, again, it, because it's the 50s, and because nowadays, you know, with the way that female port- uh, characters are portrayed, I feel like this had room to move around, but she really didn't need to even be in this film at all, so... Overall, I give this film four and a half uh, water drug pills out of five. It is a wonderfully shot and beautiful movie, and I think everybody needs to see it just for that. It's wonderful. If you've seen The Shape of Water and you haven't seen The Creature from the Black Lagoon, please go see it. Everybody needs to see this film. And you should also watch the sequel, Revenge of the Creature, because it is a very good follow-up, but I feel like the creature starts becoming more of the monster monster in that film than he is in here. So, less of a tragic tale, uh, even though we get a lot of the same characters coming back. So, what is happening next? Well, you all should be listening to the next in the series of the Universe of Monsters by checking out the Paranormal Pativity podcast. And here, I'm going to let Pat tell you a little bit about what he does on his podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Patrick. Where on my podcast, I discuss ghosts and the paranormal, personal experiences, and everything that deals with those topics. Please join me on my podcast, Paranormal Pativity. Well, that's it for this podcast, though this bonus episode of the podcast. As always, make sure that you check out the Back in Time podcast and their episode of Dracula, and check out the Creature Features pod for the Invisible Man podcast. And thank you very much once again to Phantom Dark Dave for involving me in this. Uh, I really, really appreciate it and being able to have the time to speak about the creature from the Black Lagoon. As always, you can find this podcast on Twitter, T underscore T underscore podcast. You can email me movie suggestions, terrible terror podcast at gmail.com. You can check out our Facebook, facebook.com slash terrible terror podcast, Instagram, terrible terror podcast, and rate and review us on all those platforms where podcasts are found. With that being said, I wish you guys a Jew. And we're going to be focusing on a movie for the next full episode coming out next week. So, 
Once again, thank you guys very much, and bye bye Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.